Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for part one of He Shall Reign. Amen. All right. Well, today we're kicking off a four-part series, Christmas series. And I have to say I'm excited because I love the Christmas season. This is by far my favorite time of the year. Easter comes into a close second, but I just absolutely love Christmas. And a lot of the reasons why I love Christmas has to do with family traditions. And so if you'll indulge me, I just wanna share with you some of our family traditions that we do in the Wiggins household every December. And so one of the things that we love to do every single year, we love to meet as a family, because my, my kids are grown now, they're adults, but we love to meet as a family over at Santa's Tree Village. You ever been there? Over on US1, just south of Midway. I mean, you can go to any parking lot and get a tree, or you can go and experience the whole Christmas environment. And so we love to go to Santa's the Tree Village we love to play in the fake snow that they blow all over the people. We love to drink hot chocolate. We love to go on the hayride and sing Christmas carols. We like getting into that. That's one of our family traditions. It's one of the reasons I love this season. Another reason I love this season is because later that night, we all gather together in our home and we decorate our Christmas tree. We put on the Christmas music and we just have a great time uh, spending uh, family time on that day. I love putting on uh, the outside lights on the house, and then I love even more, after it becomes dark, walking out, I do this every year by myself, I like to walk out in the street after it's dark, and I like to look back and see our whole entire house lit up uh, for Christmas. It's just something that I like to do. I love watching the same Christmas movies over and over every year. Like Miracle on 34th Street. I mean, what's better than that, right? Or A Christmas Story. Right, remember the, you'll shoot your eye out, kid, that one. And uh, my favorite, I love watching Elf. I don't know why, I crack up every single year. Um, and you know, when he, he, some of you guys are acting it out already, but when he says, you know, I'm a cotton-headed ninny-muggin, I just crack up laughing every single year. I just, I don't know what it is. And so I, I like this stuff. I like this time of year. It's a joyous time of year. Now, how many of you guys know that Jesus is the real reason for the season, right? And so I, I love in December, I always, you know, what I do is I, I'll download a Christmas album into my um, mobile device, and I'll listen in my car, I'll listen to, to Christmas worship music, and I, for, for some reason, I just get excited all over again that 2,000 years ago, God actually sent the Messiah to this sin-sick world. And I'm reminded in those Christmas carols and in those Christmas worship songs. I love our Christmas Eve services every year. They're, they're awesome because what we see is we see a lot of visitors, people who normally don't go to church on Sunday, but they come Christmas Eve. And then I had the joy of retelling the greatest story ever told, the birth of Jesus Christ and his life, his death, and his resurrection. And of course, I love the next morning, on Christmas morning, getting together again with family I love our family tradition. We've been doing it for years and years and years of reading the story of Christ's birth from one of the gospels with everybody around the tree, and then we exchange gifts like many of you. Now, this year is an extra, extra special year for our church family because this year we've decided to spend a longer time focusing on the reason for the season than we usually do. 
See, normally we give one Christmas message on Christmas Eve. That's what we've been doing for the last 11 years. But for this, this year, the Lord laid it on my heart to take the entire Advent season and don't just preach one message, but four messages on why we do what we do. It's all about the birth of Christ. And so what we're gonna do this uh, month, for the rest of the month, is we're going to look at the story of Christ's birth from four different vantage points. So it's the same story, but it's so different as we, for example, today, we're gonna look at it from Matthew's vantage point. Next week, we're gonna look at it from Luke chapter one and Luke's vantage point. On the following Thursday, Christmas Eve, we're gonna look at it from Isaiah's vantage point and the prophecy there in Isaiah chapter nine. And then the final Sunday in December, December 27th, we're gonna go back to the Gospel of Luke because there's so much there to apply to our lives and we're gonna look at Luke's vantage point from chapter two. And so that's what's on tap during this Advent season. And my thought is, and I don't know if we'll do this next year or not, but my thought is, hey, what better way to spend December this year? Especially when so many of us are so busy. I don't know about you, but December is by far the busiest month of the year. I don't even know how I got the message done this week with everything that we had going on um, this week. But this is a hectic time of the year for most of us. We're kind of running around in circles and we're going Christmas shopping and we're fighting traffic and we're preparing for out of town guests and we're cooking and we're cleaning and all the rest of it. And we just need to come apart as a church family, as guests of our church family. And we really need to quiet our hearts and we need to focus once again, as I said before, on the reason for this season. And his name, help me out, is Jesus. And so, the title of this four-part series is He Shall Reign. I love that title because of the time that we live in. The time that we live in, when we look around and we see the world is failing, the time we live in when we look around and we see that everything is falling apart, what you gotta understand, ladies and gentlemen, is that we as believers, while everything is falling apart, we have a sure hope for the future. And our sure hope for the future is yes, he shall come, and yes, he shall reign. And you say, well, how do you know for sure? It's easy. I hope you can answer this if anybody ever asks you, right? for a reason for the hope that lies within you. How do you know for sure he's coming again? Here's how we know. Because the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish scriptures are filled with prophecies that the Messiah would come. And guess what? He came. Now, they didn't know it back then. We know now because hindsight's 2020. But what they didn't know is that he would come twice. And so there's all these hundreds, all these prophecies in the Jewish scriptures about the coming of the Messiah. And guess what? A man named Jesus of Nazareth already fulfilled many of them in his first advent. Now listen, you gotta get this. This will bolster your faith. This will help you understand that our way is the way because it's Jesus' way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, how can somebody have the audacity to say that? Because no one can come to the Father except through Jesus. How do you know? Because he fulfilled prophecies 
For example, I'll just give you a few, okay? The ancient prophet Micah, he said in chapter five, verse two of his book in your Bible, the Old Testament, he said that when Messiah comes, here's one of the ways you'll be able to recognize him. He's gonna be born in Bethlehem. Guess where Jesus Christ was born? In, help me out, Bethlehem. Hundreds of years before it happened, Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, that when the Messiah comes, one way you can identify him is that he will be born of a virgin. Yes, that was prophesied in your Old Testament. We'll see it later on. Guess what? Jesus was born of a virgin. Not only that, but as you continue to look at these prophecies, um, Isaiah said later on in his book that this Messiah, this suffering servant when he comes, he's going to suffer and he's going to die for the sins of mankind. That was prophesied 700 years before it happened. In fact, it's a whole chapter in the Jewish scriptures. And guess what? Jesus of Nazareth suffered and he died. And not only that, but a thousand years before it happened, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prophesied that when Messiah comes, one of the ways you'll be able to identify him is that he's gonna rise from the dead. That was prophesied in Psalm 16, verse 10. And guess what? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, here's the good news. If you're taking notes, here's your first point. If all the prophecies of Christ's first coming were literally fulfilled in history, then all the prophecies of his second coming will also be literally fulfilled in history. Now, isn't that good news? That's great news, because he's coming again. Listen, literally, not allegorically, literally. He literally was born in Bethlehem. He literally was born of a virgin. He literally suffered and died for our sins. He literally rose again. So why do we think that his second coming is some kind of allegorical uh, thing? Or why do we think that the events surrounding his second coming are some kind of symbolic thing? No, he's literally coming back. And we're so excited about that. That's what I chose to name this four-part series. He's coming back to rule and reign. Right now, he rules and reigns in the hearts of those who love him. But one day, he's gonna rule and reign over the entire earth. And I'm just gonna wet your whistle for Christmas Eve, okay? Here's one of the prophecies we're gonna study on Christmas Eve. Isaiah 9, 6. Seven, if you're new to the Bible, 700 B.C. For unto us a what? A child is born. Unto us a what? A son is given. And the government will be on his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, check this out, okay? If you're with me, say amen here. Okay, look at the screen, all right? Look at the first two lines. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Has that already happened, yes or no? Yes, 2,000 years ago, literally, the Christ child came, the Son of God came. And so if that, ladies and gentlemen, has literally been fulfilled in history, then the rest of that prophecy must be literally fulfilled in history. 
What does that mean? That one day Jesus is going to split the sky and he's going to come back and the government is going to be on his shoulders. That means he's going to rule and reign over the entire earth. And in that day, the whole world will call him wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Are you looking forward to that day when he comes? When he reigns? When he rules? Now, is the government, help me out here, is the government right now on his shoulders? No, not even close. You think the world leaders give a flip about Jesus Christ? Not even a little bit. Nobody does. The world is lost. The world is broken. The world is not the answer. Don't put your hope in the world. Put your hope in the one who's coming to bring back what was lost, to bring Eden back, the world back, to a place where the whole world honors the Lord God once again. And he's going to do it. If he did it the first time, he's going to do it the second time. Now today... We're going to look at the greatest story ever told from Matthew's vantage point. If you're new to Calvary, as I said earlier, this is a Bible study. So we're going to go verse by verse from chapter 18 all the way to chapter 2, verse 12. And I want to encourage you, don't let your mind wander. Be disciplined to focus in. Remember, what I say doesn't matter. The words on the page are what matters. So focus in and ask God to speak to your heart this morning. Look at Matthew chapter one, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, everybody say before, before they came together, the idea there is intimately, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, what you got to understand is that Mary and Joseph were betrothed, okay? The Jewish betrothal period usually lasted for one year. And then it was during that year, um, it was a serious commitment. It was kind of like our engagement, but in many ways, it was not like our, our modern day engagement. A Jewish betrothal period was a binding commitment. In other words, they entered into this covenant, Mary and Joseph. And what, what happens is that during that one-year period, if they decide to call it off, they have to get a divorce. That's how um, binding the Jewish betrothal period was. Not only that, uh, but during that one-year uh, period, um, they were actually called husband and wife. Okay, so that would be unlike our engagement period where you're not called husband and wife until after the wedding. No, in the Jewish betrothal period, when you made that commitment for that year, you were considered a husband and a wife. Now, here's another thing about the Jewish betrothal period. That during that year, everybody please listen, the husband and the wife lived separately. They did not live together. And they did not consummate the marriage until after the wedding ceremony. And so God, what you gotta understand, and you hear me say this a lot. There's two reasons I say this a lot, okay? Number one is because it seems to come up in the scriptures as we're going verse by verse, a lot. The second reason I say this a lot is because in the culture that we live in today, 
Everybody, or almost everybody, thinks it's fine to live together before you're married. But here's, you got, here's what you gotta understand, that the God who created you in your mother's womb, the God who inspired these men to write out the scriptures, that that God created sex, and that God has a standard for sex. It's very clear over and over in his word. The standard is you save sex for marriage. It's very clear. In fact, it's so clear that I'll show you one, just one of the many verses up on the screen, Hebrews 13, four. God says marriage is honorable among all and the marriage bed is undefiled. But fornicators, okay, that Greek word is pornea from where we get the English word pornography. Fornication just doesn't include, um, just just does not encompass sexual intercourse. It's all kinds of sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage, okay? And so fornicators and adulterers, God will what? Judge. Now people say all the time, you can't preach this way. You'll never grow your church. You'll never bring in the crowds if you're always saying that it's a sin to live together. Well, well, here's a newsflash. My motivation is not a big crowd. My motivation is to help people become lifelong followers of Jesus Christ, <laughs> period. And so you have a choice. Your choice is this. You can recreate God in your image, and you can deceive yourself and say, well, God's fine with it if I wanna have sex with my boyfriend or girlfriend before we're married, God doesn't care. And you can recreate God in your own image, and you know what will happen? What will happen is the end of that verse. And don't say that nobody warns you. Because I'm here clearly saying, please, for the love of God, from a heart of love, if you are living together right now and you're engaging in sex and you're not married, you don't want to be judged by God. Now here's the good news. Our God is a merciful God. And so if today you turn, if today you make a decision that I'm gonna honor God above myself, that I'm gonna seek his will over my will, then guess what? God will forgive it and it'll be like it never even happened. That's our God. But you have to turn to him in repentance and in faith. God's word condemns all acts of sexuality outside the covenant of marriage but God's word celebrates all acts of sexuality within the covenant of marriage. If you don't believe it, read the Song of Solomon later. I said later, okay, not now, because you will totally forget the rest of this message. In fact, if anybody is sitting next to somebody and they're turning right now to Song of Solomon, just raise your hand so I can point you out in front of everybody. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay, but so before I leave this, let me just share this. What does all this mean? Okay, that, that means that if you are dating or if you're engaged to somebody and that person keeps pushing you and pushing you and pushing you to have sex, that's a warning sign from the Lord. Warning, warning, he's all about himself. Warning, warning, it's just about his needs. Warning, warning, there's a big lack of character here. Warning, warning, if he's willing to disobey God now, What's to say he won't disobey God later? In other words, if he's willing to disobey God and sleep with you now, why would he not disobey God and sleep with somebody else later? 
Listen, it's a character issue. And so here's a novel idea. Date the person, if God's leading you to, for like a year, maybe even longer. Remain chaste through that whole time. Make sure that he honors you and respects you. And then you'll see character and then you have a potential candidate for someone who deserves to spend the rest of his life with you. Amen? Amen, Amen or oh me. <laughs> now, Joseph and Mary were people of character. That means that they were committed not to consummate the marriage until after the wedding ceremony. And that's why Joseph was so shocked when Mary turned up pregnant. Now, can you imagine how hard it was for Mary to tell Joseph that she was pregnant? I mean, I can't imagine what that conversation looked like. The Bible doesn't tell us, so we can only speculate. But I, I love trying to make the Bible come alive. And so envision this in your mind's eye. Mary's so nervous, but she you know, builds herself up, and she goes to Joseph, and she says something like this, Joseph, honey, I have something to tell you, but you're going to need to sit down. <laughs> so he sits down. And so, honey, um, I'm, I don't know how to say this except to say it, I'm pregnant. But it's not what you think. And Joseph probably right now is just seeing red. He probably, everything's just shutting down. He's crushed because he really loves Mary. And so, Joseph, how is he responding? I don't know. I think he's just kind of quiet. But it's not what you think. And maybe he says, what am I supposed to think? How else do you get pregnant? <laughs> well, honey, an angel came to me. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> yeah, an angel came to me. We're going to see this next week in Luke. An angel came to me and announced that I was chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. Now, we know for a fact, biblically, that Joseph doubted her. I mean, who wouldn't? Okay, he doubts her, and so he's so crushed, he decides to call the whole thing off. Look at verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away, that's a divorce, secretly. And so he could have acted out in anger. He could have got all upset and blew his top and went around and told everybody, Mary's pregnant, Mary's pregnant. Can you believe the way she's treating me? Mary's pregnant. He could have done that. But he was a just man. He didn't want to publicly humiliate Mary. And so what did he do? He dealt with it quietly. He sought to get a divorce quietly. And then something wonderful happened. Look now at verse 20. He says, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, you know, why didn't you listen to Mary, right? That's not what he said. He said, do not be afraid. Don't you love that? Do not be afraid. In fact, everybody say those four words. Go ahead. Do not be afraid. Someone told me, I got to go back and check and make sure it's true, Someone told me that phrase, do not be afraid, is in the Bible 365 times. One time for every day of the week. Do not be afraid.
be afraid. Fear is your enemy. Don't ever, ever, ever make a decision that's based on fear. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so Joseph wakes up the next morning, and he knows that he just had a dream straight from God. He knew that he knew that he knew that the dream came from God. Quick side note, okay? It's not in the notes, but I just want to say this real quick and move on. Sometimes people come to me and they say, Pastor Mike, I had this dream. And they start to share the whole dream. And just to be quite frank with you, sometimes it's weird, okay? And they're going through and they're sharing the dream. And I'm wondering if this is from God or not. Listen, if God gives you a dream, there will not be any wondering whether it came from God or not. You will know this is from God. And please don't come to me because I had not been gifted in dream interpretation, okay? I don't know. All the dreams that I have are just really weird, okay? But here's what I do know. Please understand that in this age, God does not primarily speak through dreams. He primarily speaks through his word. So if you're a person of the word of God, you're immersed in the word of God and you're being conformed to the image of Christ and God gives you a dream and that dream lines up with the word of God. If it contradicts the Bible, throw out the dream. But if it lines up with the word of God and you know it came from God, then praise the Lord. God gave you a dream. And so Joseph goes to bed that night and all these anxious thoughts are dominating his mind. I can't believe Mary did this. Why in the world would she cheat on me? Oh, man. And so he finally falls asleep. The angel gives him a dream or appears to him in a dream. And the next day, Joseph wakes up, and he's not anxious. No, he has a peace that surpasses all understanding. He knows that the Lord has spoken to him. And so he knows that he's got to go make things right with Mary. So he no doubt goes to Mary. I'm sure he apologized for doubting her. He says, Mary, an angel appeared to me as well. What did he say? Mary, and I'm sure Joseph was just kind of like staring at Mary's stomach. I mean, how can you not? Mary, he told me I, I have to call his name Jesus for he's gonna save his people from their sins. He's gonna save us from our sins. Now, the word in the Hebrew is Yeshua. And if you're taking notes, what does that name mean? It means the Lord is salvation. Yeshua is a contraction of two words. Yeshua is a contraction of the name of God, Yahweh, and then Shua, which means salvation. Literally, Yahweh, or the Lord, is salvation. And so his name tells us the reason why he came. He came to save his people from their sins. He came to save you and I from our sins. Now, I really want to encourage you to please listen in because this is the gospel right here. This is the good news. Because so many people have bought into a lie that you just got to live a good life, try your best, and then when you get Get to heaven, if there is a heaven, you know, God, I'm sure, is loving and forgiving, and he'll let you in. And it's not the truth. It's nowhere found in this book. 
So please listen to the gospel. Jesus came to save us from our sins. He's our only hope. Without him, we have no hope. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, help me out, is death. Okay, I gotta share bad news before you share good news. You can't just go straight to the good news when you're sharing Jesus with people. They have to understand the mess that they're in. The wages of sin is death. What does that mean? That means that when you and I choose to sin, a holy, just God says, you're gonna get a wage. (laughs) Just like you go to work and you earn a paycheck, that's your wage. If you and I choose to sin, a holy God says, you're gonna get a wage. What's the wage? Death. Death. Now, people have a hard time with that because, again, I've heard it just recently. You know, um, when somebody dies, if they didn't know Jesus, it's okay because when they get to the other side, God is still merciful. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And that's giving people a false assurance. Listen, if your sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, when you cross over into eternity, you'll meet your father, God will be your father. He'll say, welcome home, and he'll hug you. But if you die in your sin, our God is a consuming fire. And it's a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so this is why Jesus came. If this wasn't true, why did he come? If we could save ourselves, why did he come? No, he came to save us from our sins, and that, that necessitated death. I know it's not popular, but here's the truth of the Bible. God is holy, and if you do the crime, you must pay the fine. That means you, we expect nothing less in our society, right? If somebody is on crack, and they go rape some lady and shoot her in the head, okay, do we really want to judge To say to that person, oh, it's okay, you can go free. Let me ask you guys this. You can answer me back. Is that what you want a judge to do in our society? No. No. Well, listen, all sin is sin to God. From lying to murder, it's all sin. It's all a violation of what he's told us to do. And so if you do the crime, if I do the crime, we must pay the fine. Or somebody must pay the fine. What's the fine? Bloodshed. That's why Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why do you think millions of animals had to be slaughtered in the Old Testament times? From, for 1,500 years or so, from Moses all the way to Jesus, actually to eighty seventy, but all the way to Jesus for that 1,500 years, here's what happened. Man sinned, an animal died. Man sinned, an animal died. Man sinned, an animal died. Whether it was a bull, whether it was a ram, whether it was a goat, or whether it was a lamb. Man sinned, and an animal had to die. Why? Because God is a holy, just God. And all those animal sacrifices, thank God, that they were there in that dispensation, why? To atone or cover the sins of God's people. And they all look forward 
to the coming of Yeshua, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Yeshua, the Lamb of God, when John the Baptist saw him, he said, stop everybody, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus Christ came, and you know, he hung on a cross, and he poured God in the flesh, poured out his life's blood. Why? Because without him shedding his blood, there's no forgiveness for you and I. While he was on the cross, a holy God poured out his wrath, as we just sang ago, a little while ago. He poured out his wrath against sin on his son. And Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath of a holy, just God, and he died. Before he died, he cried out, paid in full. That means that all of our sins, no matter what we've done, past, present, future, can be forgiven by the blood of, the, of Jesus Christ. But listen, you've gotta make the choice. Everybody say choice. Okay, listen. You've gotta make the choice to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. And you gotta give your life to him. And when that happens, the blood of Jesus wash, doesn't, just, doesn't just cover, it washes away all your sins, past, present, future, and God is no longer your judge, now God is your father. And when you walk across from this life to the next, you get a big bear hug from a father who loves you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And that's why he came. That's why Jesus came. Look at verse 22. So all this was done after the angel told Joseph to name him, name him Yeshua. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying in verse 23, behold, the, what's the word? The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, that's a title, which is translated God with us. And so what Matthew is doing now, here in the first century AD, is he's going all the way back 700 years to the prophet Isaiah, and he's quoting, we'll put it on the screen, this verse. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. By the way, the sign is for the whole house of David. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so what does Emmanuel mean? Matthew defined it. We'll go ahead and put it on the screen. It means God with us. Now, this is really good news as well. God, if you know Christ, is with us. As Christians, as born-again Christians, we reject the false teaching of deism. Okay, a lot of quote-unquote good and God-fearing people were and are deists. Some of our forefathers we're deists, okay, but we reject deism. Why? Because deism basically teaches that God created the world and then he went on vacation. He left us on our own. Deism teaches that, yes, there is a God, but after God created, he's not personally involved in the affairs of the world. He's not personally involved in the affairs of people. And that's not true. Why? Because the title of his son is Emmanuel, God with us. And so if you know Christ, please everybody say if, okay? 
This is not a universal proclamation for everybody that lives in the world. If you know Christ, then God is with you. He's with you in the morning when you wake up. He's with you all during the day. He's with you when you go to bed at night and when you sleep all night. He's with you. He's with you on your commute to work. He's with you while you're at work. He's with you while you're at school. He's with you in the evening when you're hanging out with your family and friends because he's with us. He's with us when we're crying. He's with us when we're laughing. He's with us in the good times. He's with us in the hard times. God's promise is that he's with us. How many of you guys are really glad that you don't have to do life alone? Right, isn't that good news? You don't have to go through life alone. He's with you, but that's if you accept Jesus Christ. And if you accept Jesus Christ, his promise to you in Hebrews 13, five, is I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Look at verse 24 now. So Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took to him his wife. And look at this, did not know her, the inference there is intimately, and did not know her until, okay, you see that? Until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name what? Jesus. And so at some point, the Jewish betrothal period ended. The year period ended. Joseph and Mary had their wedding ceremony. And then, uh, according to chapter 2, verse 11, by the way, they eventually moved into a house in Bethlehem. And I'll talk about that a little later. But eventually, after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary came together intimately, romantically. And she had other children. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that Mary was not a perpetual virgin for her whole, whole life. That cannot be found in this book. Now, it is taught by a certain denomination, but you have to understand that that is a man-made teaching that comes after the word of God was written. Mary and Joseph got together after Jesus was born, and they had sons and daughters. They weren't cousins. They were kids. Okay, and so make sure that you get your facts straight and that you can separate biblical teaching from church teaching. Now, what you gotta understand is between chapter one and chapter two, a long period passes. We don't know exactly how long, but people have um, speculated that it's, it's months, okay? So months have passed as we go from chapter one to chapter two. Now please look at chapter two. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And so now we're getting into the story of the wise men, otherwise known as magi, now, this is a fascinating study. I've enjoyed this week looking deeper into um, the Magi and who they were. And so what you need to know is that the Magi is the name that the ancient Persians and the Babylonians gave to a certain uh, priestly tribe. 
And these priests were seers and physicians and teachers, astrologers and astronomers. Okay, so the wise men, the magi, they're from the east. Okay, so ancient Babylon, Persia, probably that area, most likely, most definitely that area. Okay, so that's where they're from. And it's a fascinating study. And I just wanted to show you one quote um, from Robin Shoemaker and what he has to say about the Magi. He says, and I quote, that they rose to a place of enormous political power by virtue of their very unique priestly function. Now notice this, occultist powers of divination. Now, there was thousands of magi throughout the years. That doesn't mean that the magi in Matthew chapter two were the occult, but this is what the whole group was known for. Their occultist powers of divination and knowledge of astrology and astronomy. During how many world empires? Four, okay, so everybody look at me real quick. You got Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Okay, throughout all that history, the Magi served in a powerful, influential capacity as advisors to the royalty in the East, consequently earning the reputation of being wise men. Okay, so the Magi, the wise men, you know, who are these people that came to visit Jesus? They could trace their roots all the way back to ancient Babylon and ancient Persia, and you need to know that some of the Magi were influenced by the Jews, the reason we know that is because in 605 um, BC, Babylon came down, attacked Judah, and they took the Jews into captivity all the way back up to Babylon, modern day Iraq. Later on in history, Persia defeats Babylon, modern day Iran. Persia defeats Babylon. And during that time, some of the Jews, after the Persians defeated the Babylonians, some of the Jews did go back down to Judah, but a lot of them stayed up there in the east. And they believed the Messiah would one day come. And they had their scriptures, and they influenced people there in ancient Persia. In fact, I usually don't go this deep, but I think you got to get this. How did they know that the star had to do with the king of the Jews? Well, check this out. In 605 BC, the Babylonians come down and they take captive a young man. Anybody remember his name? Daniel. And they take Daniel. And remember some other guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they take him back up to modern day Iraq. Now Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he appoints young Daniel as the chief administrator of the wise men. So Daniel now, a Jew who loves the Lord, is in charge of these wise men. And if you know anything about the book of Daniel, you know Daniel wrote all kind of prophecies about the Messiah and about when he would come. And so I personally believe that the writings of Daniel greatly influenced the Magi for many generations all the way down to Matthew chapter 2. And so now we're back in Matthew chapter two and you have the Magi and they look up and they see this astronomical phenomenon and somehow it alerts them that the king of the Jews has been born. Well, how, how do you get that? I believe they've been reading the scroll of Daniel. 
We call it Daniel chapter nine. They didn't have chapter divisions back then, but in Daniel chapter nine, listen, listen, it's the most fascinating Bible prophecy in the Bible. In Daniel chapter nine, Daniel gives us the exact time when the Messiah would come to the earth. And that time was when the Magi were living in Matthew two. And so they're reading Daniel. They understand we're living in the time of the advent of the Jewish Messiah. They see this special star, this astronomical phenomenon, and they get on their camels, and they start making the long trek from Persia all the way down to Jerusalem. Eight or 900 miles on the backs of camels. Can you imagine what that felt like? You cover about, I don't know, 10 miles a day, Okay, that takes over two months as they're making their way down to Jerusalem. They're passionate about seeing the king of the Jews. Now, before we move on, here's a quick side note. Because I'm such a literalist, okay? I can't help myself. Some of you guys have manger scenes in your home right now. And they have three kings standing before a stable and the baby Jesus. Here's your, your theological applicational point for today. Your manger scene is not biblical. <laughs> There's at least three things wrong with your manger scene. Number one, they weren't kings, they were priests. Number two, they weren't there the night that Jesus was born. They're making their long trek. They came later in verse 11 of chapter two into a house, not a stable, into a house. And then the third thing wrong with your manger scene is that we assume that because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that there were three wise men. That's pure speculation. The Bible doesn't say how many there were. I believe there were many magi. And I believe it was a huge entourage because it says in verse three that all of Jerusalem was troubled when they pulled all their camels into Jerusalem. So I think it's a lot. And so, next year, when you buy your manger, <laughs> here's what I wanna encourage you to do. Buy more Magi. <laughs> and then, don't put them next to the stable, put them in another room in the house, okay? And then, every single day, just move them a little closer. And then when the kids ask you, mom and dad, why aren't they over here by the stable? You can tell them, uh, son, daughter, they're on a long journey from Persia to Jerusalem. <laughs> and then, maybe a couple months after Christmas, then take the baby Jesus out of the stable and put him in a house somewhere. Maybe you can go in your kid's closet and get Barbie and Ken's house, I don't know. <laughs> put him in the house, right? And then a couple months after Christmas, have the Magi come, and then you'll be A-OK -okay biblically, okay? I just thought I'd share that with you guys. All right. That's what happens when you go verse by verse. You see this stuff, okay. Look at verse three. When Herod the king heard this, this big entourage of Magi, saying, where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? He was troubled. And all Jerusalem, that's thousands and thousands of people with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, that you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you, Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, what? Israel. So the wicked King Herod, who was not even a Jew, he was an Edomite, descendant of Esau, a vassal king, a puppet of Rome, a wicked man who killed many members, murdered many members of his own household. This puppet of Rome wants to know where the Christ child is, not because he wants to worship Jesus, because he wants to kill Jesus. Herod's the king, he doesn't want any competition. And so they tell him from an ancient prophecy, Micah 5, 2, we'll skip it, that he's gonna be born in Bethlehem. Now look at verse seven. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from what time the star appeared. He wants to know exactly when the child was born. And he sent them, the wise men, to Bethlehem, and said, go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and what? Worship him also. He's a hypocrite. He just has murder in his heart. Verse nine, and when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star, here's that astronomical phenomenon, which they had seen in the east, back east in ancient Persia. It, it reappears. It went before them, now, notice this. this is, you can't explain this by science. Until it, the star, came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, as the star is guiding them, it stops over the little house where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are staying in a little town called Bethlehem. And that's how we know it wasn't an actual star. This was not an actual star. There's other ways to define this original word, but it can't be a star. Here's how you know, it's simple. The smallest star that we know of is called a red dwarf. You know how big the smallest star is? It's 20% larger than Jupiter, the planet Jupiter. You say, how big, how big is that? You can fit 1,300 planet Earths in Jupiter. And so that's the smallest star. So if, the, if a small star went and hung out over a house, nobody would be here to talk about it, okay? So I don't personally, again, I don't want to burst anybody's Christmas bubble, okay? But I don't purposely believe it, I don't personally believe it was a star. Here's my opinion, and I'll, I'll tell you it's opinion. I believe it's the Shekinah glory of God. Much like the pillar of fire in Exodus that led the children of Israel by night in their wilderness wanderings, and they actually led, they were led by it. That's what I think this astronomical phenomenon actually is. And here's our last two verses. Verse 11, and when they had come into the house, not a stable, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Don't you love that? Now, if these magi were involved in the occult, I believe they never were involved in the occult again because they had a divine encounter with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
They worshiped him, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So the Magi, now, you guys follow me here. Don't just read words and then pack up, okay? Try to picture it in your mind. Okay, are you with me right now? Try to put yourself in the sandals of, a, of Mary and Joseph. They're in a little house in Bethlehem, it's a little village, and this big entourage of camels and magi are coming down the street of this little town. Not just three people, a bunch. I mean, so many camels and so many magi in this little town that they're, they're parking on this dirt road and they're, they're, they're violating all kind of parking um, rules. You know, the, I'm sure the cops are there telling them, move that camel, whatever, okay? So they're all there. They're getting off their camels and they, they all can't fit into this little house. So it's just, you know, a few at a time. And they go into this little house and they see Jesus. He's not a newborn. He's a little older now. We don't know how, exactly how old, maybe a toddler. And they see him and they hit the ground. And here's your last point, if you're taking notes. It's not original with me. Wise men and women still worship him. They still worship him. Now, before you pack up, let me apply this, okay? And then we'll be done, because we're out of time. Why were the wise men wise men? If you're with me, say amen here. Okay, listen, listen, listen. They were wise men because they were in the word of God. They read the scroll of Daniel. The question I have for you is, are you in the word of God on a daily basis? I don't, I don't want to minimize anybody's heartache or pain or trial, but there's a lot of heartache and pain that goes on for a long, way longer than it needs to because people are just not in the word. They're not renewing their mind in the word of God. The second reason these wise men were wise men is because they sought diligently the Lord Jesus Christ. 800 or 900 miles. That's passion. Are you diligently seeking Jesus Christ in your life? Or have you just kind of got into this comfortable, nominal Christianity? Churchianity, as we said last week. The third reason the wise men were wise men is because they gave of their wealth to the king. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Are you a giver or do you hoard your finances? And the fourth and last reason why the wise men were wise men is because they worshiped the Lord Jesus. And I have to ask, are you a passionate worshiper of Jesus Christ? Or do you come in on Sunday mornings and just kind of watch a performance? Don't really sing too much. No, I'm saying, do you come in here before the first note of the first song, ready to just give your all to the Lord in worship? And then Monday through Saturday, do you have your mobile device and you're listening to worship songs, just praising the Lord, exalting him? Listen, I, I, I believe I'm speaking for the Lord this morning because it just keeps coming up in my mind. Some of you are dealing with depression and discouragement 
for months and months and months, and it's because you're not renewing your mind in the word, you're not worshiping the king every single day. Begin to do that. And listen, this world who cares, this world may not call you wise, but heaven will call you wise. Amen? One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.